a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Indubitably. My name is Thomas, and I am a recovering debater, and I will be the host of this week's episode, where I'll be moderating a live debate on the topic of whether or not we should assassinate Vladimir Putin. Before we get started, I'll give you a brief overview of how our debate will be formatted. In the first half, we will start with one speaker from each side presenting their case in a six-minute speech, followed by a period of cross-examination, where they will question each other directly. Then the second speaker for each side will repeat the process. During these speeches, you will hear interjections from the opposite side called points of information. This is an opportunity to ask the speaker questions or challenge them on statements as they are being made. Today, Josh and Kelly will be joining forces on the proposition side to support the assassination of Vladimir Putin. Their opponents in this debate will be Sam French and Philip Krasovsky. Sam is a former award-winning collegiate debater turned random guy with an opinion and an internet connection. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And his partner in this debate is Philip. Philip is a former award-winning collegiate debater, although not as award-winning as Sam, but has the added benefit of being a Russian citizen, which provides him some unique insight into this motion, as well as extra incentive to be on the offside. Philip also coaches public speaking for middle schoolers. Philip, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. Uh, honored to be on the only side I'm legally allowed to be on. Without any further ado, I'd like to call on our first speaker, Josh, to open up this debate for us. Vladimir Putin has been a scourge to people across the globe for over 20 years. He started as an intelligence officer in the KGB, the Soviet Union's version of the CIA, an organization responsible for the placing of millions of people into gulags, forced labor camps, usually until they died from truly atrocious conditions. They managed the country through fear with political adversaries disappearing on a regular basis. Since 1999, Putin has served as either prime minister or president of Russia, utilizing political gamesmanship to completely disregard any term limits or constitutional oversight. Under Putin's leadership, Russia has experienced democratic backsliding and a shift to authoritarianism. Putin's rule has been characterized by endemic corruption, the jailing and repression of political opponents, the intimidation and suppression of media freedom in Russia, and a lack of free and fair elections. But it isn't just domestic Russian policy that Putin ignores. International laws and conventions are treated as jokes, and the sovereignty of nations around him is completely disrespected. Obviously, the current unjustifiable incursion into the Ukraine is the catalyst for today's debate. But this is by no means the first time a Putin-led Russia has acted in such a manner. For a decade, from 1999 to 2009, Russia occupied the region of Chechnya, in a conflict where an estimated 25 to 50,000 Chechnyan civilians were murdered. In 2008, Russia invaded the sovereign nation of Georgia, where it still occupies 20% of Georgia's internationally recognized territory. And this is even the first time that Russia has invaded Ukraine. In 2014, Russia just decided to take the Crimean region of Ukraine, again resulting in thousands of deaths. Literally every six to seven years, Putin just decides he needs to show the world what a tough guy he is, tears off his shirt, jumps on the back of a bear, and rides into whatever neighboring country is unfortunate enough to have garnered his attention that time around. With the death toll and destruction growing on an hourly basis in Ukraine right now, Kelly and I are not willing for Putin to satisfy his ego for this conflict to stop. 
In the immortal words of the Buddha, fuck this guy. We believe the assassination of Vladimir Putin is not only justified, but it is necessary to save the lives of the innocents who are being slaughtered and the stability of a region who has become too used to living in fear. Now, here's the thing. Kelly and I came up with this super sneaky, foolproof plan for exactly how we were going to take our Russian comrade out. But if we tell you what it is here, one of our millions of listeners might leak it, and then this whole thing is a bust. Needless to say, the United States government has proven in the past that it's really good at killing people, and with the enemies Putin has made both inside his country and out, it shouldn't be hard to ensure we bring a swift end to his life, and with it, the needless suffering of this and any future conflicts he would most certainly perpetuate. And if all other plans fail, we can just tell Keanu Reeves that Putin killed his dog and let nature take its course. I think that there's three things here that we need to prove to justify the assassination of anybody. So I'm going to lay these out for you and show you exactly how Putin fits the criteria. Number one, that there are no alternatives to assassination. Number two, that principally it is deserved. And number three, on a utilitarian level, that it will prevent further loss of life. I honestly don't think we need to do much to prove number A. Putin took power over 20 years ago and has proven that he has no intention of giving it up. We've given you his record when it comes to violating international human rights and laws, and there's no indication he's planning on stopping the pattern. We've tried sanctions. Check out our episode on that. We've tried diplomacy. We've tried threats to no avail. There are no alternatives. For the other two, I want to take a moment away from Putin and actually look to the strike against Osama bin Laden. The raid against Osama bin Laden was supported by 90% of the American public and resulted in a 10% jump in Obama's approval. Since then, 18 more members of al-Qaeda have been assassinated. I think there's two interesting things here. One, Putin has killed tens of thousands more people than bin Laden did and is responsible for massive destabilization of an entire region of the world. Also, bin Laden was easily replaceable within his organization, as evidenced by our need to continuously cut off head after head of the metaphorical snake. We think that if the assassination of Osama bin Laden was justified and celebrated, then certainly the assassination of Putin qualifies under the same standards. Sam, you have a question? Um, yeah. What nation was Osama bin Laden the president of? And how many nuclear warheads does that nation control? All right. So apparently the argument that's going to be coming up is that Russia will retaliate to the assassination with the use of nuclear weapons, which I don't think is a realistic argument. And after it's made, we'll be happy to take it down. Kelly's got my back on that one. So moving on with my last two prerequisites to justify assassination. First of all, principally, does he deserve it? I want to look to the idea of the death penalty. This is essentially, on a principled level, the same as the death penalty. And there are some considerations for the death penalty that I think Putin meets. This is premeditated. This is unprovoked. This is cold and calculated. This is not walking in on your boyfriend cheating on you and taking a baseball bat to their car. This is using the Ukrainian people as pawns in a proxy war against the United States. If he doesn't want to be assassinated, at least bring your fight to the people you actually have a problem with. Invade Washington, D.C. and see how that works out for you. Bring your nukes. America. Thousands of civilians have lost their lives, family members, homes, and cities so that Putin can achieve his political ends. There is only one way to bring this to an end as swiftly as possible, and that is by our plan. This also brings us to criteria three, that our action would prevent further loss of life. Let's be clear here. 
This is not a debate over assassinating Vladimir Putin versus everyone else living together in peace and harmony. This is a debate between taking a swift, decisive, and regrettable action in carrying out the targeted killing of one individual and allowing a conflict to drag on indefinitely, resulting in much more regrettable losses of life among the civilian population of Ukraine. And beyond civilians, Ukrainian soldiers who have been forced into that role by the actions of a madman, and Russian soldiers who are suffering a similar fate whether they agree with this conflict or not. And most of them don't. So unless you are ready to have this same exact debate six years from now, because we have no other alternatives, because of the lives that have already been lost, in order to prevent the deaths yet to come, Vladimir Putin needs to die. Thank you, Josh, for the speech. And now to open up the case for the opposition side, I'd like to welcome Sam. Even as an attempt, an assassination is not something that can be undone. It's only a one-way street, and it's only something that ends with ruin. Even at the point where Josh wants to make the flimsy, and I'll say incredibly flimsy comparison to Osama bin Laden, he does only answer half of the question I did. I said, what country is he the president of? Because again, he was a man who had no nation. He was a man who was just the head of an organization. And even that organization, as a criminal enterprise, had a power vacuum that had tons of infighting that led to the creation of alternative splinter organizations that have been ravaging everywhere across North Africa, Yemen, the Levant, all across the Middle East, even as far as Indonesia and East Timor. There have been all of these splinter organizations were arguably created by the American policy of terrorist assassination and the war on terror, killing people from Osama bin Laden to Amor Awalaki, extrajudicially and wrongly. All of these things would have been better pursued as things that would have been legal international mechanisms that could have been pursued with uh, joint operations, with UN resolutions, with all of the mechanisms that have been used to undo Putin from this canny, calculating KGB villain that Josh points him as, where in the last four weeks, that image has completely disintegrated. We've seen who Putin the man actually is, and maybe why he relates so much to Donald Trump, because they both appear to just be clueless morons who have interesting ideas about masculinity and how they have to project it into the world. And what that does is allows us to look at the situation as it actually exists, versus how it exists in Josh's imagination, and how assassination actually exists, versus how it exists in Josh's imagination. There's two reasons that you kill somebody in an assassination. It's because you are desperate and you have no other option, like Josh said. But like it's again, it's not because you have no other option. If you have no other option, you are desperate, right? And in this situation, the United States certainly isn't desperate. And whatever plan he comes up with, however you would do it, it's a bad idea. So that's not a thing that we have any beef with. You know, so even though he has no plan because it's a bad idea, um, there is a situation in which we aren't desperate. Like we have tons of things that are working. We made him look like a complete moron. Even his own people, his state media, like uh, state media parrots are going on TV and saying that there shouldn't be a war and that Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Like that the uh, principal, like tons of uh, prominent Russian cultural figures are abandoning their posts and leaving the country. Even saying that, uh, Vladimir Putin's a war criminal. The head of the Bolshoi, the prima ballerina of the Bolshoi has left. Like there's tons of other cultural figures have been speaking out against him, which is something that would be completely unheard of before. Now, what we're dealing with now in this situation is 
the other thing that would be, that would necessitate the assassination would be that you have overwhelming asymmetric power over the other actor in charge. And that's how, what we had with Osama bin Laden. The United States has overwhelming asymmetric power over any stateless terrorist organization. I mean, if you look at the kill count, uh, you know, if you wanted Call of Duty rules this, uh, it's what, 3,000 to 1 million? I mean, it's like, it's, it's a pretty good KD that shows that something happened and literally all of American society was completely revamped overnight to be anti-terrorist and have something where this could literally never happen again because we were all willing to consent to jailing ourselves to being able to carry this stuff out. So at the point where you have this overwhelming level of physical power over another individual and you can then just snuff them out in order to literally just boost your approval rating and to make people happy, then you can assassinate them. But at the point where you don't have that because they do control 5,000 nuclear weapons or more, you know, and at the point where I guess this whole thing is going to be about how you're just going to say how they're not going to nuke us. Well, yeah, we also thought they wouldn't invade Ukraine. Look at where they did. This is really the biggest situation is that how have we had successes against Putin? And it's literally through radical rule following. Before I get into that, Josh just seemed to have some questions. Right. So with all of this backlash that you're pointing out to Putin inside of Russia and his loss of political support, why hasn't any of this slowed down his aggression? I mean, it's because he ultimately has what he thinks to be no way out. So ultimately, when you have this situation, is that you have to just keep your foot on the gas and then just keep this situation where it just becomes more and more and more unpopular. So at the point where he then has the option to retreat or to try to gain an overwhelming victory, but it's becoming something that's less and less possible just because of the shambolic construction of the Russian military, being that it's composed of 95% one-year conscripts that receive little to no training, and that the Spetsnaz that we all are afraid of as Westerners, as the ultimate Russian boogeyman, they don't actually really exist in large enough numbers to carry out significant military operations. So at the point where the U.S. can, again, and this is where I mean, a lot of our argument lies is the fact that like we've had more success with Putin through just following the rules and being radically transparent with our allies than we have with backroom deals or assassinations against any other. So like when this whole operation has just been Biden having the intelligence community tell everybody up to the minute updates of everything that we knew that Russia was going to be doing and then forcing the hand on all of our European allies to have to come together as a block because they knew that ultimately all of these things were going on. So what, even to the point where when we suggest, we let Europe quarterback a lot of the sanctions and everything, we let Germany make their own decision to shut down Nord Stream 2. Like we ultimately created this situation by just only following rules, by making sure that we cleared military aid for existing contracts, that we cleared all of these, all of these situations that we could set up and then execute them legally in order to do damage to Putin only legally. And that legitimacy that we have by being the entire world against this one man makes it so that why would we undo it by then literally murdering? Like we are afraid of setting up a no-fly zone. So we're going to murder the president of this country. Like I think that these options, that should be maybe option one. Because option Z would be nuking Moscow. And I think that being that close to insanity is also insanity. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for the speech, Sam. We'll now have a period of cross-examination when we will start by Josh questioning Sam and then switch halfway through to give him the chance to return the favor. First of all, Sam, what I'm noticing in your speech is that your arguments are based purely in practicality. So just to clarify at the beginning, you haven't mentioned whether or not you think Putin principally would deserve this. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't know or care if he deserves it, honestly. Like, it, that, that's a thing that is so far removed from this that I think that it misses the point of this debate entirely. Okay, so you're conceding the principled point and just let's, okay, let's, that's fine. Let's focus on practicality. In terms of our use of Osama bin Laden, besides pointing out that he deserves this, um, you say he's the head of an organization, there's splinter organizations, which meant that the assassination wasn't as effective. Isn't this an argument for our side that because Putin has consolidated the power of an entire country onto himself, if we take him out, this assassination would stop the aggression even more effectively than the assassination of bin Laden did? Well, I don't think it would at all. I think it would actually double it down because then it's because what Putin has done to concentrate the power onto himself is to ultimately have all of the organizations tied up in this mafioso way where ultimately like you have through bribes and then through the threat of jail time with your, you know, gulags, whatever, like, because you took your job and you're head of a major government organization through a bribe, then he has this dirt on everybody. But once the dirt's all gone, then it just becomes the same way that Putin got into power, was that he was the defense organization's darling. And ultimately, whoever is in charge of defense is the one who's going to appoint the new Putin. But don't you think that you're contradicting yourself where on one side, you're saying he has all of this power that's consolidated. And on the other side, you're saying that there's this huge backlash to him inside of Russia. And if we just wait for that backlash, things will work themselves out. So we don't need to take this action. No, I don't think it's contradictory at all. I think it's the fact that you have the backlash in Russia is coming from cultural figures and civilians. All of his oligarchs are still in lock, even Abramovich, like Abramovich's kids. I think he's a great example because like Abramovich, like he can't say anything publicly about Putin. But one of his best friends was assassinated by Putin in 2002. And that created a situation in which Abramovich can't speak publicly because he holds all of this power. But in the fact that all of, like he has to um, he's been frozen out of Chelsea and all of the other vanity assets that he has and all of his kids don't have anything anymore. But his kids all hate Putin and all publicly resist him on Instagram. So now it's my turn. So this image that you have of Putin, like I just want to understand why you think that the idea of Putin or the Putin of 1999 is the Putin of 2022. I think in the beginning of my speech, I list clearly every six or seven years, the same Putin shows up. He sets his sight on some country or some region and has shown a willingness to invade and nothing we've done. None of the things you list in your speech have stopped him from doing it again and again. What were the reactions back then versus the reactions now? The same. You're invading no. a so you're, in, you're invading a sovereign nation. What are you doing? The reactions to what he did. The same. Crimea. Crimea was a slaughter. Georgia was a slaughter. Okay. Uh, so Chechnya again, was a slaughter. Okay. So then I'm then dominating the film because basically Josh can't even say what the international community did then versus what they're doing now. You have a unified base of sanctions from every European country and from all the Asian democracies. Like you have of the seizing of assets. You have like, all of those things are completely different than the appeasement strategy that was taken over those past times. I will say that, yeah, appeasement wasn't right, 
but ultimately war and assassination isn't. We've had sanctions. We've had international condemnation every single time. What we haven't had is assassination. All right. Thank you for that cross-examination. We'll now move on to hear from our second speaker, starting with Kelly for the government side. I find it very interesting that the opposition does not want to tangle with most of the standards that were laid out by Josh, and they're not principally important to this debate, I guess. Well, I'm going to bring them back up. What I'm first going to do is discuss what we heard from Josh and rebolster what we've heard after the refutation, we'll call it, from side opposition here. And then I'm going to go through what we heard from the opposition about some of the unique standards they think that Russia has working in its favor, I guess, that make it so that this would be what they consider an ineffective action. All right. So what we hear from Josh is first that there are no alternatives. We hear a response that yeah, there are. Look at how people are like protesting more and things like that, which are not actually doing anything to curb the invasion. They are increasing the dialogue predominantly in non-Russian countries about the invasion. But people who are protesting in Russia are still getting thrown in jail. The uh, civilians are still getting bombed in the Ukraine. I don't see that there's any effectual change on what's happening in Ukraine based on the fact that people in Russia feel more comfortable dissenting. It hasn't done anything to make Vladimir Putin soften his position whatsoever. Furthermore, the we're seizing his assets argument is really like the biggest unique thing that we're doing. That's a non-military response. And that's not really doing much either because most oligarchs have their assets hidden in places that U.S. sanctions can't reach them. So they're probably going to have like one less yacht. Okay, that's not principally also doing very much to change the way that Vladimir Putin is approaching this invasion. Now, let's hear the the, the the second and the third standard that Josh brought up about how this is deserved. Josh brings this up in cross-examination. We hear from Sam that this doesn't matter. This is irrelevant to the debate. And I think that's absolutely a point that needs to be reaffirmed by side proposition here, is that we do not just set a standard in which people who are inconvenienced are killed. We have to look at people who have done bad enough things and who cannot be curbed in any other way as being the ones who deserve to be taken out via an assassination. So the the gravity, the severity of the crimes that have been committed are the things that we are looking at as being what qualifies him on this standard. And then we hear absolutely no response from the opposition about the the the, the utilitarian principle of the loss of life. There is a there is a, a discussion about the retaliation of Russia when we're talking about the bin Laden discussion, which I will get into momentarily. But in, when we're talking about what is worth doing to save lives, we hear no response from the opposition. Um, I'll take Philip's question. So in regards to the standard of when it's okay to assassinate a world leader, do you mind repeating what your criteria were for that? That there are no alternatives that it's principally deserved, and that it is a utilitarian principle of the loss of life. Okay, but then we hear a response to this from Sam about the specific example of bin Laden that I think is really important because he says that, look at all these other organizations that popped up because of you cut off the head of this snake and like a basilisk arose again in Northern Africa and things like that. And I'm gonna talk about why it's actually an asset to our point here that we're looking at a state actor versus a non-state actor. The balance of power internationally, the mutually assured destruction that holds the world in balance with nuclear powers, 
only works when you have rational actors involved. Vladimir Putin is an irrational actor. When he is taken out, all of the other people in the position around him have shown a greater aptitude for sanity than he has by being not Vladimir Putin, who decided to send like 19-year-old boys across the border, not even tell their mothers and not even give them GPS in their tanks. Like that is not a rational actor who's leading a military incursion right now. So what this does is that it preserves the rationality of Russia as a state for self-preservation, that they will not engage in nuclear warfare because they know about mutually assured destruction and know that a retaliatory nuclear strike would result in the leveling of Russia. We don't see that as being a possibility with Vladimir Putin in power. We think that the nuclear war outcome is higher with him in power because of his irrationality. And we think that this sends a message to the next level leadership of Russia that, yeah, you are probably in Putin's inner circle, but if you act like he did, you are likely to get, I don't know, tripped on an icy bridge or something mafia style. I don't know. So then let's talk about what we heard from the standards that the opposition puts forth. One about the idea of how there actually are these other options. I think I've already handled that. And then the second standard about how this only ever happens when we have an actual asymmetry of power. And we didn't hear a justification for why that is the standard. We only hear that that's just how we've historically done assassinations. I don't think that's a justification. I think we should, I don't know, break with tradition. Now let's talk about the idea of the rule following and the pressure and how radical transparency is what's going to win the day that the side opposition is talking about. How is that the case? How is that even possibly going to work out when we're fighting two different kinds of wars here? We're talking about an actor on the other side of this conflict who is not playing the game with the rules intact versus uh, us deciding that we don't want to incur the wrath of Vladimir Putin and incur a nuclear strike by saying that there's a no-fly zone and potentially actually having a nuclear response happen. You know what happens when you kill Vladimir Putin? You can have a no-fly zone. Because the next leaders of Russia will be like, I don't think I'm going to do a nuclear strike because I don't want to get assassinated and I don't want Russia to be leveled with a nuclear response. This is all going to be resolved when you take out the one linchpin of the instability and the insanity of Russia. And that is Vladimir Putin himself. Thank you for that, Kelly. And for the last speech of the first half of this debate, we have Philip on the opposition side. I think it's the height of arrogance to, without any context about Russia's foreign policy, assume that Putin is irrational, number one. Number two, to assume that the leader after him is going to be scared of the West and hide in a hole. And number three, completely misclarify why the invasion of Ukraine is happening before your eyes. This isn't Putin tearing off his shirt and having a bro moment. This is a resource war because Ukraine has the 14th largest reserve of natural gas on the planet. And if it were to start selling it to Europe, suddenly Germany, Russia's biggest client, would abruptly no longer need Russia um, for any of its energy demands. Like this is about Ukraine becoming a petro state and Putin doing everything in his power to stop it. Moreover than that, it's about the philosophy in Russian politics about NATO being an existential threat to Russia after repeated, according to Putin, violations of treaties and promises to not expand. NATO is now on Russia's doorstep. Any member of the Russian government sees it as a threat. If you kill Putin, you're not going to get someone that's soft on Ukraine. This framing is absurd to me. So 
Um, I want to begin by talking about some of the things Kelly mentioned. So the argument that we don't have any alternatives seems uninformed to me in a lot of ways. Um, Sam mentioning the no-fly zone straight up is a good example. Um, the argument that protests don't curb the invasion is simply untrue. What they do is they cause dissent to swell in the ranks. The reason that the invasion has slowed down is because people are legitimately tired of fighting a war they don't understand. There are 19-year-old men in Ukraine who thought this was a military exercise, now doubting the fact that shooting your own brothers and sisters from a cultural perspective is going to do anything. When they see protests at home, what you see on the battlefield is tons of battalions just straight up laying down their arms because they don't want to fight this war. These things matter. The argument about deserving death seems hypocritical to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, if your anguish with Putin is that he refuses to abide by international law, I don't think violating international law is the just response. Like a principally consistent argument would be, we're going to wait for Putin to lose this war, which he will, and then we're going to drag him to The Hague and try him for crimes against humanity. Kelly. The standards for international law are not don't kill ever. They're talking about the standards are proportional and discriminant. This would be very discriminant. It would be one person. But this isn't like you, you can apply that standard to George Bush. You could apply it to Xi Jinping right now. You could literally use the same exact reasoning to assassinate Xi Jinping, but you won't. Why is that? Because of the fallout, right? Because if the West suddenly starts deciding which leaders are worth killing and which ones aren't, we're back in the 50s. We've been here before with Castro, and it didn't really help us then. It's not going to help us now. It sets a dangerous precedent, and it's principally inconsistent. I want to talk then, given that those first two standards don't really make sense, about the loss of life. Why is killing Putin a bad idea if you're trying to stop casualties in Ukraine? And I think that starts with asking, what does it look like when he dies? The answer is simple. For 90 days, we have an emergency government. We have a provisional government. We host elections. And then those elections really kind of get suspended because it's going to be the same way it was in the 90s. Whoever the security bloc chooses is going to be, be, the, be the president of the Russian Federation. Yeltsin did not elect Putin. Putin wasn't elected. He was backed by the KGB, as he was then, and he's backed by whatever remnants of the security bloc exists now. When Putin dies, the people who decide who's president are going to be his inner circle, the people with the most political leverage. It's likely, well, a lot of people suspect, that this might be the Minister of Defense, Sergei Shaigu, right? A man who is ardently gung-ho on the military, who only sees things from a political lens, and who very much thinks that NATO is an existential threat to Europe, right? He sees NATO as a threatening force that needs to be pushed back as much as possible, and his stance on Ukraine isn't going to be, let's try something new. It's going to be combined with the very real assessment of the assassination of Putin as something done by the West, right? Russia is going to take this as a declaration of war um, in several ways. First of all, it's probably going to be obvious that this was orchestrated in response to an invasion of Ukraine, number one. And number two, I think it justifies a lot of the rhetoric that Putin has given us, right? Like the West is out to get us. All of these weird paranoid speeches suddenly come true. They become a way to repress individuals who dissent against the state in a new and unconventional way that Russia has never leveraged before. Um, but more importantly, I think it makes the nature of the Ukrainian invasion far more punitive in two ways. Because it's a declaration of war, now it's not just about taking over strategic, you know, strategic objections and oil reserves. Um, it's also about literally just punishing Ukraine 
for being with the West and orchestrating purportedly an assassination of the leader of Russia. So I think that's the first one. The second one, when I spoke about the dissent in the Russian army, I think there's a chance, like there's a very unintended consequence that some of that goes away. It's easier to cal- galvanize a group of people when you tell them that the leader is dead and they're probably next, right? Like the type of rhetoric that inspired Russians to fight um, seemingly for their life during World War II is easily accessible if you kill the leader of Russia. Suddenly, these people have a reason to go to war. They're no longer lost and confused 19-year-olds. They're people on a mission to protect their home because it's under invasion from the West. That might mean one of two things. Either one, the mission, like I said, becomes more punitive and you get more civilian casualties at the hands of Shaigu, or worse of all, you get a galvanized army that refuses to step down no matter who's at the helm. Either way this is a horrible idea all right thank you for that speech philip and now it is kelly and philip's turn to engage in cross-examination all right on the point that this whole war is really a resource war that you make why would a rational russia keep going on this path when even more of their resources have been cut off likely permanently as a result Um, I think that's a mischaracterization of the war. I don't understand the reasoning that their resources have been permanently cut off. I think you're talking about sanctions. Um, But the real reason is that it's cheaper to buy oil from Ukraine on every conceivable metric and allowing Ukraine to be a petro state is a big threat to the Russian economy, which is why Crimea was invaded first. It has access to all of the natural gas reserves in Ukraine through its coastline. That wasn't a coincidence. Okay, so additionally, if all these other folks are going to come out and be just as bad as Putin, blah, 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 he's not the uniquely bad person in Russia. If he was not a unique figurehead, if he was not a unique person, then why did he have to be the one that was in power for the past 23 years? Um, Well, I mean, he didn't have to be in power in the same way that no one in politics has to be in power. It was the 90s. Yeltsin was on his way out. Um, And Yeltsin picked Putin for the same reason that Putin picked a tax accountant to replace him. He was relatively low level and initially seemingly unambitious, so he wouldn't threaten anyone. Uh, That ended up not being the case because he was backed by the KGB in this instance. Okay. And on this point that you made about galvanizing power when an assassination happens, what's the actual reality of people's perceptions in Russia? Are people right now protesting and very anti-Putin in Russia, or are they so wrapped around this cult of personality that they're willing to hero worship a fallen leader when he's assassinated? I... I, I, th- I think you're conflating what you see on the news with what with how a lot of the Russian population feels. There's a plurality of different opinions, and a lot of people may not necessarily be pro-Putin, but they are very decidedly anti-West because they see themselves as being robbed of a legacy of relative stability. Like the collapse of the Soviet Union is still mourned by about 70% of the population, which breeds a lot of anti-Western sentiment. It's your turn, Philip. Okay, so I want to get into why do you think Putin is an irrational actor? What makes him irrational? Because he's gone into a a war zone with bad equipment, bad resources and underprepared. And the only thing that he's using to his advantage is that he's abrogated the standards of international war. I'm just I'm I'm puzzled by what what makes that necessarily an irrational move, because like. How do, how do you figure that he's under-equipped, per se, as opposed to just not being very good at logistics? Well, I mean, logistics is about supply chain management, and he seems to not have very many of them. This is definitely a war that he is not going to win, 
there's no way he's going to win this war. And he knew that going in. So it's just a war of extreme violence and cruelty at this point. That's not any way strategic operators usually conduct themselves when they're looking at international conflict. Well, I mean, my question is like, would you apply that reasoning to like the United States incursion of Afghanistan? Because it's called the grave of empires for a reason. Were we irrational then? I, I could talk at length about how I feel about the United States bellicose nature. <laughs> that's, that's not the debate we're talking about right now. Well, I mean, I, 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 I think you understand why I'm asking this question. The reason is that if the standard is we didn't win, then a lot of wars become irrational. But that's fine. We can gloss over that later. So I, I want to ask you another thing. Um, you said that this death is deserved. And the POI, I think I miscommunicated earlier, was like, what? how do you figure that someone deserves to die? Is it just not playing by the rules? It's not just not playing by the rules. Part of it is my Scorpio sense is tingling and telling me that that person is really shitty. But part of it is that this person cannot be stopped any other way. And they continue to demonstrate a disregard for human life in a way that is not proportional or discriminate and actually furthering the goals of any humans other than their own sense of ego. Thank you for that cross-examination. Now, moving into the second half of the debate, we will have one more speech from each side and then the last period of cross-examination, after which we will culminate in a three-minute summary speeches, starting with the opposition side and concluding with the proposition. For the first of those speeches, I'd like to turn the mic back over to Josh. The opposition has not answered a very important question throughout the first half of this debate. Why will Vladimir Putin ever change the ways in which he transgresses international law, oppresses his own people, and murders citizens of countries in his region. They make a few attempts. Let's deal with them one by one. Sam says we have effective alternatives in response to the first criteria that I laid out. He points to sanctions. He points to diplomatic pressure. He points to international condemnation. He says, hey, you know, these are the things that we used to deal with Putin in the past. Yes. We used these things when he occupied Chechnya and 50,000 civilians were murdered. And then six years later in Georgia, and then again in Crimea, and then again now in Ukraine. Why is this going to be any different? Sam's only answer is that we're really serious about it this time. <laughs> I don't think that that's enough to show that there's going to be any break in the pattern that we've seen historically in Putin's actions. His second attempt is he says, well, Celebrities in the country are turning against him. Okay, but as I pointed out, the aggression has not slowed down. And why is that? Sam gives us his answer. He says, because Putin maintains iron-fisted control over those individuals in power in Russia. All right, well, as he answers my question, he shoots himself in the foot in his suggestion that the public opinion turning against Putin is going to make any difference. And then we get from Philip maybe the best answer. We'll drag him to The Hague. Maybe they can explain to me how they're going to get Putin to The Hague, especially in the face of all of their argumentation about how untouchable he is. Sam, I'll give you a chance to defend yourself. I feel like these accusations are of a brain that has been destroyed by the 24-hour news cycle, where two things can't happen at the same time, where ultimately things have to happen immediately or they can't have happened. And if anything is more in one minute in the past, it's like it never happened at all. Okay, but the problem here is that every every minute that you wait, people are dying. You're there like, let's just hold on for a second and see how this plays out. And meanwhile, the people in Ukraine, just like the people in every other region that we point to, 
they are suffering every second that we wait. And Kelly and I are tired of waiting for that. And even when this conflict ends, again, six years from now, we are going to be in the same situation with people like the opposition in this debate saying, why don't we just, you know, maybe take his yacht away from him and take away the toys of some of his oligarchs. And you know, in a month or two, it'll settle down again. That's not acceptable anymore. So these are their arguments that suggest that there might be other alternatives to stop this conflict. Next, let's deal with the fear mongering over what's going to happen if we succeed with this assassination and what the backlash of Putin's replacement would be. First, Sams throws out this idea that Russia is a nuclear power, as if Russia is willing to use that weaponry against the United States. Unlikely. I think it's telling that they dropped that through the rest of their speeches. I don't think anybody believes Russia is going to be using that nuclear weaponry. Secondly, more realistically, Putin's replacement, they suggest, will be equal to or worse than Putin himself. Definitionally, a new leader cannot come even close to presenting the same threat as the cult of personality that Putin has managed to cultivate over the last 20 years. They do not have the same control over the public. They do not have the same control over the oligarchs. They do not wield the same fear or international influence that Putin does. What's also interesting here is that when we ask Sam why Putin's aggression has not been tempered, he answers that he doesn't think he has a way out. This is huge because Putin's replacement does have a way out. Putin, as he built up this cult of personality, has portrayed himself as untouchable, has portrayed himself as infallible. Once he's committed to an invasion like this, he cannot back down from it. But the next person does have the option of doing that. They can point to Putin. They can say Putin made a mistake. This was his fault. And this might be the biggest benefit in forcing regime change through assassination. The other benefit that we have here is exactly the idea that Putin thinks he's untouchable. This assassination draws a line in the sand and lets any successor know that there are limits to the actions that they can take when it comes to ignoring international law and treating innocent civilians of neighboring countries as pawns in a cold war. When you take action like this, you get pianos dropped on your head. Ah, oh, fuck. That was our super secret master plan and I just let it out there. We're going to have to think of something else. Anyway, so finally, I'm curious, what do they think that Putin's replacement can possibly do here? Let's assume that they managed to garner somehow the same power. Let's assume they managed to garner the same influence. What could the replacement possibly do here that is worse than the actions that Putin has taken? As we've said, every six years, we see international incursions that result in the deaths of thousands of innocent bystanders. I don't think that it gets worse than this. So throughout our speeches, I think we've proven, A, there are no alternatives. Assassination is the only way to break this cycle. We've proven, B, that Putin deserves this on a principled level. And whether or not they say that's important, we think it's important. The Scorpio and Kelly thinks it's important. And C, we think that this is the most effective way to ensure a minimization of the loss of life that we see in the conflicts like Putin consistently propagates. Thank you for that speech, Josh. And now for the last substantive speech of the debate, we have Sam on the opposition side. I've had one question, basically, this whole debate. You know, and it's just, it took a while, I think, to crystallize. But it's like, what is the goal of the government? Because I think that their goal is just that they see someone who they can blame 
for everything, even the equipment in the T-72. Apparently, Putin designed the BMP in the, D- in the T-72 and made it so that they get bogged down in heavy mud and made it so they didn't come with the GPS. And they're blaming one person for every single thing that has gone on for the last 20 feet, 23 years in the Russian regime, like no one else has ever been involved in anything. And if we kill him, Alexei Navalny will assume power and everyone else that went along with this serial poisoner will go on to live a happy life as a Western ally and join NATO. Now, I find that to be incredibly unlike for two reasons. One, I will give Josh and Kelly $100 each for every Russian government official they could name past five people. I do not think they can do that. I know Philip can. And Philip had a sophisticated analysis with heirs apparent, with people that he actually knew who would replace them. Well, I, like Josh and Kelly, pretty much only know Putin and Navalny, the good guy and the bad guy. So. At this point, I would side with what he was saying. Basically, the guy with the passport is the guy who I'm going to believe about this. Second, when we're looking at this, our goal would be to have a continued stable international order. Be ultimately for us to have a world that has more peace in it than it has war. Now, at this point, it does look grim in Ukraine. But When I accused Josh of brain rot, what I was positing, moreover, was that you hear talking heads talk about war being something that only takes hours. And like no one looks at the fact that in World War I, everyone was assuming we'd be home by Christmas. No one in 1958 thought the troubles would last till 1998. Like everyone thought that everything is going to be okay and that we will win. It's the same brain disease that is had by the government side in the creation of this plan. The idea that we have a simple, elegant solution to just remove somebody, and because they deserve it, because really, like Philip said, anyone could deserve it. We could assassinate Xi for his treatment of the Uyghurs and his exploration of Taiwan and building of islands in the South China Sea. But anyone could be of desert of assassination, which is why I said, It's completely irrelevant and arbitrary to this debate. It doesn't matter. What does matter is war, which is what this is. You are creating a situation in which a war that has two actors now has at least three actors because you are flagrantly violating international law and throwing it to the wind in support of some sort of Batman-esque vigilante justice. But guess what? Batman doesn't solve crime. Batman creates the Joker by throwing the mafiosos in prison. That's what happens in this situation exactly. Before I go on, Kelly, yeah. I love that we've reached the point of the debate we're citing comic books, but I need to hear from side opposition how they think that this conflict is actually going to end if there are no leadership changes in Russia. What is likely to happen to the Ukraine if Putin is not removed from power? Uh, The ruble has fallen by over 90%. And honestly, the army just won't be able to support itself without intense Chinese intervention, which Biden is heading off right now. So like at the point where you have a legal framework of the international community cooperating together and 
things like suspension of MFN status at stake, which Russia was suspended from the first time since the Berlin Wall fell, where you have stuff like the exclusion from trade agreements and international organizations and threats to your money being, is it really worth it to support this guy while I can keep selling PlayStations in America? Like, those are now the questions that people have to ask, aka questions that have nothing to do with moral desert. It's only about practicality and function and the harmoniousness of a society, which is all I am concerned about. Like, at the point where you where we have decided as an international community that it is a bad idea to have a no-fly zone, which is a much less provocative act than the murdering of a head of state. You are going to commit murder of a president. That Josh ignored the important part of the bin Laden question. The nukes are beside the point. He is not the head of a country. There is no like there's not millions of people that have a national identity tied to Osama bin Laden. There isn't an Osama bin Laden flag. Like you don't have that situation. You what you have is a dispersed international gang of criminals that become other criminal organizations. That was the description that was again. And I, you know, this is what annoyed me about this activity is that ultimately it's just about a bunch of pithy aphorisms to try to create a controversial opinion when the reality of the situation is you say that you care about war, you say that you care about the propagation of peace, but you what you want to do is create a situation in which you have World War III. What started World War I? That's the thing that matters the most. It was the assassination of a dignitary that led to a cascading uh, avalanche of allyships that led to a prolonged 10-year war where millions of people died. All right. Thank you for that speech, Sam. Here we'll move into our final section of the debate where Kelly and Philip will engage in one last cross-examination before providing summary speeches, starting with Philip on opposition and finishing with Kelly. All right. I pressed Sam in a point of information about how this actually ends in Ukraine, how things actually come to a conclusion. And he gives a lot of examples of slow moving processes. What's the time frame for this actually happening? Um, I think it would be ambitious for the four of us to decide how the war in Ukraine ends, we can give you some viable opportunities. I think if we stick with the status quo and play like the rules, by the rules, the way Sam said we have been, a tired, weary, demoralized Russian army marches home. And then down the line, any number of possible political reforms might feasibly happen. I'm happy to go through them if you'd like. Okay, I think that's incredibly unlikely and incredibly time consuming. How likely is it that this war in Ukraine would end more immediately if Putin was no longer in power by any means necessary? I would say pretty unlikely, given the certainty we have of who's going to replace him. But how are any of the people who are determined to replace him in any way the same kind of mentally rational or irrational actor that he is? Well, they're not. They're different. And in fact, the way in which they're different is far more dangerous. So like I talked about Sergei Shaigu a lot, um, the head of the, the Ministry of War, basically. Um, he's a lot less balanced than Putin on how to handle the existential threat of NATO. Like, I think very likely if he takes over, he's at the reins of a galvanized, angry Russia, and he's focused on making this as punitive as possible. He did this before many, many times. Like, this is not new to us. Since I've been sharing my, my perspective on this so much, Kelly, how, how do you see the war ending in Ukraine if we assassinate Putin? Like, like, give me your side of the story. What happens? 
Well, I think it does operate a lot differently than the Al-Qaeda example because there is an actual state identity at stake and states are rational actors who believe in self-preservation. I think that everything that you've seen from Putin indicates that he does not really care about self-preservation. This is a war of ego. This is a war of irrationality. So what I see is happening is new leadership comes in that actually is like, hmm, maybe it would be nice if Russia could actually sell its oil to Europe again and decides to back off in the aggressive nature and can actually become an international partner and not threaten nuclear strikes because people don't want to fly over war zones. I don't I don't think we need to talk about nuclear strikes too much. Like yeah, that's a possibility, but like, you know, not even not one either of us are going to dabble in, but I'm I'm curious like okay, so Putin only cares about self-preservation. Um if hypothetically he was able to 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 claim some degree of success in this invasion, um do you think that would be enough for him to back off or does he just want Ukraine to stop existing as a nation state? I think that if this was about an actual strategic war, if this is about the goals that you were talking about, we would see the war fought in a very different way. We wouldn't see the civilian strikes. We wouldn't see the bombing of maternity hospitals and things like that. I don't think this is about self-preservation. I think that he, and I don't want to armchair diagnose here. I think he's literally a maniac. So, so he's, is, is he a maniac because of the bombing of civilian locations? Like, why do you feel that way? I think it indicates that he is not thinking rationally here, which means that he is much more willing to do desperate things to preserve his position in Russia, up to and including nuclear Wait, let me Let me interject here for a sec. So um, I think I recall sometime during the United States' adventurism in the Middle East, we bombed, like, A, a wedding, and B, a Doctors Without Borders hospital. And then we also did an extrajudicial killing of two U.S. citizens with drone strikes. So does that make any of our heads of state maniacs? And if not, then why? Okay, I don't want to defend anybody in the United States. I hate most of the political leaders here. This isn't what this is about. If the standard applies to other leaders too, then let's kill them. Thank you for that cross-examination. Philip, you can now provide the final summary for your side of the debate. I think Kelly said the quiet part out loud when she said, if this applies to other leaders, let's kill them too. I think that's probably the most dangerous component of this type of mentality that characterizes this like Western adventurism where we decide a guy is bad. And so in the ensuing chaos, we take his life and pretend we fix the problem. Um, The problem is that we're not alone. The United States is not the only country in the world. And as soon as you send the message that it's okay to kill other leaders, heads of state, government officials that have committed something comparable to a war crime or a crime against humanity because we think they're irrational, um, I think we end up in a very dangerous place. Um, We end up in a place where China is free to do this, where other countries are free to do this, and they all see themselves as, you know, moral agents that don't see anything wrong with this because the people they're killing principally deserved it. Like this is a world that even from a philosophical point of view invites chaos and warfare as a primary diplomatic tool, right? Um, what are the rules that Josh gave us? One, that there's no alternatives. So I think there's very little proof on Gov's side that the war effort is not slowing down. The war machine is bleeding cash. Battalions are mutineering, laying down their arms, refusing to fight their own brothers and sisters. Um, These things are working. You just have to wait a little bit. Like Sam said, the fact that we don't have instant gratification is not an argument against these. But I think the bottom line is like just the analysis on Chechnya is nonsense. Like we did not do anything to Chechnya because Chechnya is inside of Russia. Ukraine, however, is on the border with Europe. We have so many more tools at our disposal. 
I think I've already touched on the morality of deserving to die. And I think finally, then the question is, how does the conflict end? What's more utilitarian? How do we save more people from inevitable chaos? I'm going to be blunt about this. The analysis of who replaces Putin is simply more salient from Sam and I's telling. We know that Shaigu or someone in the defense bloc is going to take over. This is inevitable. Like, yes, Mishustin is going to be president for 90 days, and then he's going to shove, be shoved to the wayside. I think it's going to be easier for Shaigu as a military leader to have far better planning and logistics without Putin's supervision So that's the first one. This gets worse because Russia's war machine is now far more advanced without Putin's leadership. And second of all, we think that Shaigu has far less to lose. He doesn't have to worry about keeping his reputation afloat because he's doing this on the heels of a country whose leader just died only mere decades after its economy was destroyed by Europe and the West, right? Like, I think that a lot of the people who may not necessarily like Putin but dislike the West will be able to galvanize this new presidency. I think the alternative is playing by the rules and creating a world in which either Putin is removed internally and organically, which invites far less outrage, or at the very least, steps down in such a way that he becomes useless. Hopefully, less lives are lost, and I don't think killing Putin is how we accomplish that. Thank you for that summary, Philip. And for the final thoughts on this topic, we have the proposition summary speech from Kelly. This may be perhaps the most realistic time where we can really look at the possible outcomes and paint a picture of the two different worlds we're looking at when we look at what the opposition has offered us today, which seems very unrealistic considering the way that Vladimir Putin has been operating and the outcomes that we on side proposition here have been illustrating as the most likely outcomes when we actually assassinate a leader like this. First, what the opposition will eventually have happen if Vladimir Putin is not removed from power is a perpetuation of the same, that the consequences that we've applied to Putin are piecemeal, are ineffective, are uh, incomplete when he can hide his money from Western sanctions, when he can still sell oil to China, things like that. Um, We see that he has no real repercussions to an international invasion other than depleting his military of young people and some tanks. He's just going to do this again because he keeps doing it. He has a pattern of this type of behavior. And I think Josh illustrated that perfectly. There is no new real response to this other than the global outrage because it's a bunch of white people he's doing it to. But still, if there was a realistic end game here, that showed that this is going to stop, it likely would have happened already considering the consequences he's already borne. He's not going to stop. This is a war of aggression. This is a war of cruelty and violence. And it's going to stop um, either when he has no military left or he owns Ukraine. On side proposition, we believe that more rational heads will prevail when Vladimir Putin's is sliced off. What we mean is that we understand the psychology of most leaders who want some preservation of their actual statehood and uh, resources, that, that they don't want their currency depleted, that they don't want the threat of being assassinated by powers other than themselves, which is a likely outcome. If we do it once, we can do it again, things like that. The cause and effect calculus will be much more acutely understood when Vladimir Putin is taken out and new leaders are put into power there. The We believe that we'll have a more precipitous end to the conflict in Ukraine, which will be a preservation of life, which we believe is one of the primary values and one of the standards that we set forth at the very beginning when Josh was talking about utilitarianism. 
We also believe that, yes, Vladimir Putin does deserve this, and potentially other leaders will as well. The examples that we hear from Philip most recently are leaders who can be persuaded in other means using some of the methods that they think are going to be working for Vladimir Putin, which clearly are not. Or there can be legal consequences like dragging them to The Hague in a way that you cannot drag Vladimir Putin to The Hague. We lose all of those options. We are never going to get him to stand trial for something like this. The only way to stop his actions as they stand right now is to remove him from the equation entirely. And if for all of those reasons that we think that it is the most practical, the most efficient, the most fair, just, and life-preserving thing to do is to take this person out and save everybody else. Thank you, Kelly. And that, folks, is a wrap. I'd like to thank all the speakers for their thoughts and intriguing arguments. I had a great time listening and analyzing, and hopefully you all did as well. If you'd like to continue this debate or let us know who you think won, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at IndubitablyPod. If you're looking for resources or ways to get involved, here are some options. The Red Cross in Ukraine, which is aiding refugees, training doctors, and performing many other critical tasks. UNICEF is currently focusing on support for children and families affected by the war in Ukraine. Doctors Without Borders is medical aid for people in need all across the world, which is available for people in Ukraine and those experiencing illness, war, and other forms of strife globally. And if you cannot donate anything at this time, one critical form of advocacy is to become as informed as possible on the motivations behind Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the history of the neighbors in the post-Soviet era, and seek as much truth as possible amid all the punditry and misinformation that has flooded social media. Indubitably hopes to be a small part of the fight against inaccuracy as it pertains to this conflict and so many other issues.